1 Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> we'll be looking at the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the row in front of you you can grab. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you as our gift. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be looking at the entire chapter. This is a sermon, really. It's a Samuel's words to Israel. Um, my, in my ESV, it says the, the farewell address as he is getting older and, and sort of passing the torch off to the king. His time as leader, as judge, as prophet, and, and mediator is coming to a close. So these are his, his final words to Israel on behalf of God. And uh, so we'll be looking at the entire chapter. And, and not soon after this, we'll be continually looking at Saul as we go through 1 Samuel and the way he leads and fails as the king of Israel. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're not able to, that's fine. It's a longer section. This is God's holy word. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. And here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it. Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. Now now, therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord, 
that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. We have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, would you take these words and root them in our hearts? Would you show us more of the truth in it and transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit? Make us more like Christ Jesus, our hope and our salvation. In his mighty name that we pray, amen. Our family went to um, the Great Wolf Lodge a few weeks ago. And I don't know if you've been in an, an arcade lately, but they have an arcade in the basement or the bottom floor of the Great Wolf Lodge. And going in there, obviously the kids are excited. The lights are shining everywhere. There's lights lighting up. There's tons of games. It's a sensory overload. It's a sensory overload. And as we were in there, our children's behavior got worse and worse and worse. It's sort of like what, it's sort of a casino for children. Right? It's supposed to sensory overload. You're supposed to forget about time. You're supposed to forget about what you're doing and just spend money, spend money, spend money. And most of the games in that arcade were those grabber games that you never win. And of course, that's what they wanted to play. I think we spent most of our time doing skee-ball. But it reminded me of in Pilgrim's Progress, Vanity Fair, where you go into Vanity Fair and it's a mindless game of material things getting more and getting more and getting more of this world. And it's chaotic. You lose a sense of time. You, lose, uh, you, you feel like you can't see straight. When you walk out of the arcade, you sort of, your eyes have to like readjust. It's all like coming out of a movie and a matinee and coming out and seeing the sunlight. And you have to readjust. That's what life is like sometimes. We can't see straight. We're bombarded by life and news and busyness. And we have to see straight. And so God wants us to see certain things in this passage. And also, when we try to read Old Testament narratives, it's hard to feel like we're seeing straight or, or reading it correctly. There's a lot in here. We can get lost in the details, can't we? So let me just state it plainly to reorient ourselves. When you read about Israel and their sin and their folly, that's supposed to be us. That is us. We are like Israel. And God acts to us, the same way that he's always acted toward his people. And he wants to show us two things. He wants to show us our sin, and he wants to show us his steadfast love. Those are the two things he's showing us this morning. 
Maybe you grew up with hearing the false gospel that preached sin without love, without God's love. Judgment of sin for your sin, but not God's mercy and grace and love. Maybe you heard that a lot growing up. Billy Graham once said, I've heard some preachers preach on hell as though they were glad there was a hell and glad that people were going there. But I'm not. I don't like to preach on it. I do it only because I'm commanded in Scripture to preach the Word, and it's against the backdrop of God's love and mercy and grace that I must preach it. It's that message of Christianity, that, some, that, that false version of Christianity where God's love is non-existent. You just keep getting hit over the head with your sin and judgment. That, that, that does exist, sadly. But what's more common these days is the false gospel of God's love without judgment for sin. That's more common of what we, what we hear. Kevin Holleran, an author, writes, A couple years ago, there was a controversy surrounding the lyrics to the song, In Christ Alone. Those compiling the PCUSA's hymnal wanted to remove the line, The wrath of God was satisfied in favor of the love of God was magnified. Therefore, exalting God's love to the exclusion of God's wrath And when you do that, it does the opposite of what it seeks to accomplish. It avoids the bad news and makes the good news optional. That's the danger. When you you avoid the bad news of of the sin that we all have, it makes the good news optional. It makes God's love optional. This is one reason why starting gospel presentations with God loves you can be unhelpful. Well, of course God loves me, someone might say. I'm pretty special. They might, then they might close themselves off to hearing and embracing the gospel that rescues us from God's wrath. The first error says God's love is non-existent. The second error is God's love is optional. It's optional. So in this text this morning, to clearly understand God and ourselves, we need to see two things. We need to see our sin, and we need to see God's steadfast love. And what's sad in those two false versions of Christianity is that while people reject those false versions of the gospel, they proceed to reject all of Christianity and never give the true gospel a chance, the true message of Christianity. So let's see what that true message is and what it looks like. We're going to first look at the the first half of chapter 12. Begin looking at, we're going to go all the way to verse 13, but first let's look at verses 1 through 5. Samuel begins his speech by saying, Behold. When you ever see behold in the Scriptures, that means pay attention. I'm going to say something important. Jesus often would say, Truly, truly, I say to you. Same sort of deal. Behold. Listen. God is speaking. I have obeyed your voice, he says, in all that you've said to me, and have made a king over you. And behold, verse 2, the king walks before you. I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. And then he goes on to ask these questions, these rhetorical questions. Whose ox have I taken? Who have I defrauded? Samuel, in doing this, is saying, look, I have been blameless before you. Am I perfect? No. Remember we we read earlier in the chapters that his sons didn't walk in his ways. He's not a perfect man. But he's blameless in the sense that he has been upright. He has been trustworthy. He's been a good leader for God's people. So in verses 1 through 5, he's basically saying, I am acquitted from any fault. There's a problem here. You guys have a problem. 
there's a problem in Israel, and I'm not the problem. That's what Samuel's saying in verses 1 through 5. Who have I defrauded? Who have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe? Testify against me. And you see these words of testify, testify, be a witness. These are uh, the language you, you hear in court, don't you? Those who testify, those who are witnesses. So this is legal language he's using to basically say, I am acquitted from any wrongdoing. So it's not Samuel's issue. And they respond, the Lord is witness in verse 5 against you, and is anointed as witness that day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So they agree. Samuel, you're good. What about God? Can they blame God for anything? Let's look at verse 6 through 11. So in verses 6 through 11, what Samuel is doing is he's recounting the history of God's faithfulness toward them. He said to the people in verse 6, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your father. So he's saying, stand still. I'm going to tell you everything God's done on his part to, uh, to love you and protect you. In five different times we read, in five different cases, the Lord sent, the Lord sent, the Lord sent. He sent help whenever they cried out. Whenever the people cried out to him because they were being bombarded by their enemies, he sent help. Look at verse 8. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera. And so again, they fall into idolatry again and again. But in verse 10, what do the people do? They cry out to the Lord. We've sinned. We've we've committed idolatry. Deliver us, God. And in verse 11, the Lord sent Jerubbaal, Barak, Jephthah, and notice he includes himself in there. Samuel, to protect you and to be your judge. So in verses 6 through 11, God is justified. He is righteous. He has been acquitted. So the problem lies not with Samuel, not with God. Who's left? The people, right? The people have to be the ones who are guilty. There's There's no other party to blame. So let's look at verses 12 and 13. What is their sin? What is the major problem? And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came unto you, and you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was king. That's the big sin. When they had another oppressor, this guy Nahash, who was gouging out people's right eyes, they said, No, we're not going to cry out for help. We want you to give me a king. That's what they say to God. Give us a king who will reign over us. And notice what he says, when the Lord your God was your king. That sounds like a heartbreaking statement. When the Lord your God was king, you said, give me another king. So that is their big sin. They wanted to specify the exact nature of the help that they would need, which would inevitably subvert their trust in God. They didn't cry out to the Lord, say, Lord, help us any way you can help us. Please help us. No, they said, give us a king to replace you as king. And so, when thinking about our own lives, any new beginning, 
any new beginning for, your, for you in your life has to include the knowledge of your own sin. That God very often opens, lifts the veil and shows us our sin when he wants to give us a new start, when we want to change. You have to see your own sin. And so let's not overlook the significance of their sin. It was wanting to specify that they wanted help from elsewhere. They wanted a king of their choice instead of the king who would choose them and save them. So make no mistake, we're talking about treason. This is treason to go against their king. But isn't it amazing? And here we get a hint of the gospel here. He still gives them a king. He still gives them what they ask. And so what that teaches me in my own life is God works through my blunders. He works through my bad decisions. He works through my blatant rejection of him. Very often he uses your mistakes to keep you close to him and to ultimately save you. He is big enough to do that. He works through our blunders, bad decisions, and rejection of him. But ultimately, it does come down to what we're worshiping, doesn't it? So if we skip all the way to verse 21, this is a warning in the latter half of this speech. That Samuel is saying, Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. They're putting their hope in empty things. I thought at first this word for empty in the Hebrew was from Ecclesiastes, the word for vanity. You know, this, this breath, this vanity, this vapor. But actually, it's the word you read from Genesis chapter 1, where the, where the world uh, was empty, without, uh, without, it was void, without anything. It was formless. Before God created anything, this emptiness, there's nothing there. There's a nothing burger. I like that word. I hear it. people say. There's nothing there. There's no there there in our idols. Our idols are always going to fail us. What we put our hope in besides God. It can be your marriage. It can be good things. It can be your kids, your marriage, your spouse, your family, your church. Anything you put in place of God. If you're building your life on something other than the Creator as your foundation, then what you're building is building in the air. If you're building your life on anything besides the Creator... And here's the thing, you may last 30 years, 40 years building in the air, building on your idolatries. You may be really busy, but in the end, you're a vapor. You become a vapor. My old pastor in California says this, life is weightless unless it is bolted to God. Life is weightless. It reminded me of a movie called Gravity, and it's, uh, Sandra Bullock is in it. And it's, uh, it's about these two astronauts working on the space station. It's orbiting Earth. And in one of the scenes, I think it's one of the first scenes of the movie. It's a really good movie. You should go see it. She has a dream or something of sort of working on the space station outside of the space station, but hooked, you know, hooked with her, uh, the cord rope thing, but becomes unhooked. And she begins leaving the space station, just herself, just in her suit, but spinning and spinning away from Earth, away from the space station, with nothing to stop her until she died. Well, that's her, her bad dream. But life is weightless. It's, it's sort of like that. Unless you're bolted 
to God, unless your life is, is connected to him, you're a vapor. And that's what he's warning them. Do not build your life on emptiness. Well, the good news this morning is this, that our failure to live faithfully before God does not hinder his faithfulness to you, does not hinder his faithfulness to us. And so the second thing he wants us to see is God's steadfast love, that God proves his love to us repeatedly. We reject him repeatedly, but he proves his love to us again and again. Let's look beginning at verse 14. So they've seen their sin. Now behold, king who you've chosen, uh, for whom you've asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Verse 13. In verse 14 through 18, we see that Samuel gives them a challenge and he gives them a sign. So the challenge is that they and their king need to submit and obey God and things will be well. End of verse 14. But Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of your Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, he gives them the sign. Therefore, stand still. See the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. He says, is it not wheat harvest today? And I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you will know and see that your wickedness is great. So it's wheat harvest. What does that have to do really with anything? Why would a thunderstorm make any difference during wheat harvest? Well, wheat harvest, it was a dry season. And they're gathering up, harvesting all the wheat. Um, and so that you don't expect rain in a dry season, right? This would sort of be like Miami getting snow in June, right? Is it impossible? No. Is it pretty inconceivable? Yeah. And so this would have been very strange, uh, crazy, actually pretty damaging to the crops. It could be damaging to these crops if they received a lot of rain, sort of out of nowhere where it's supposed to be dry. So why does God do this? Well, God flexes his muscles, doesn't he, here? He's bringing thunder and storms to show what he's capable of. He's backing up his words with action, with a sign. It reminded me that, so he's doing this to make them tremble in fear. It reminded me of a story where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and he doesn't bring a storm to make them tremble in fear, but he takes the storm away. In both cases, God is showing control over creation, but also in both cases, the response from the people is terror, terror and fear and awe of what God is doing. So my question to you is, this was, you know, this was a difficult and possibly damaging trial for them to see and experience in Israel. But he's trying to wake them up to their sin. So my question to you is, what difficult and possibly damaging trial has God put in your life to awaken fear and trembling in you? Has God ever done that in your life? Has he, has he woken you up with a situation of pain or difficulty that he brought into your life to open your eyes. C.S. Lewis says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. That God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's often in our pain that we cry out to the Lord, isn't it? It's in the difficult things God gives us 
that we say, God, I need your help. And you inspect your life and you, and you cry out to him for help. Dale Ralph Davis says, only when God's people see their sin from his perspective is there hope that they will turn from it. We have to see our sin from God's perspective before we have any hope of turning away from our sin. Uh, I really love a story. I heard this way back in college, and it's from uh, Vody Bauckham, pastor, preacher. And uh, he was talking about the why sin is so awful. Why sin is so awful? Why it's so terrible? And we often will think, well, why do bad things happen in this world? And he talked about meeting with philosophy students. He says, one of the worst things um, you can do is just take a semester of philosophy. Because you think you know it all. Right? You've got all the vocabulary. You, got, you learned all the words. Um, and so he's had philosophy students come to him and say, well, if God is you know, um, omnipresent, uh, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, why, why is this issue of theodicy? Why, why is theodicy? And theodicy just means why do bad things happen? Is, he in really, is God really in control? And Vody Bauckham just responds, so you're asking me, like, why you, don't use all these words. Change your question. Your question is, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Is that what you're asking? And they say, yeah, that's what we're asking. And he says this, look me in my eyes and ask me this. How on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Ask the question that way and we can talk. But until you ask it in that way, you do not understand the issue. Until you ask the question that way, you believe the problem is out there somewhere. Until you ask the question that way, you believe that there are some individuals who in and of themselves deserve something other than the wrath of Almighty God. When you ask me the question that way, when you say, why is it that we are here today? Why has he not consumed each and every one of us and devoured us? Why? Why, O oh God, does your judgment and your wrath tarry? Then you truly understand the issue. Then you truly get it. See, brothers and sisters, you must understand, we must understand We're the problem. The problem isn't out there. You're the problem. That you should not be here living, breathing, ignoring God, half-heart trusting God, a fourth of you guys thinking about lunch, the other three-fourths of you guys hoping my sermon's going to end in a minute. We deserve, I deserve, God's unrelenting, never giving up, always and forever wrath. Until you understand that, you will never understand the gospel. Until you understand that, God's love will always be optional to you. But if you understand wrath, if you understand God's anger, if you understand the situation of your sin from His perspective, God's love is not optional. Bible reading is not optional. Attending church is not optional. Because you must have His mercy. You must come for His love when you know your malady, when you know your sin condition. You must come before him. If you don't know anything about that, it's all optional. It's just an extra, church is just an extracurricular activity in that case. But that's not the truth. We are under God's wrath without his love. So let's turn to some hope. In verse 19, he says, And all the people said to Samuel, 
Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves for a king. They see their sin, don't they? We have brought this evil upon ourselves. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Isn't that an interesting statement? Just fascinating. He says, Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. How does that statement make any sense apart from the grace and mercy of God? Simply put, it doesn't. Don't be afraid. You've done all this evil. Notice how God doesn't excuse the sin that Israel's committed. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. It wasn't your fault. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. You didn't mean to do this. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. You're good. You're good, boys and girls. No, he says, don't be afraid. You've really messed this up. God does not excuse our sin. God pays for our sin. The gospel, brothers and sisters, confronts our sin. It doesn't push it under the rug. Dale Ralph Davis says, you must see your great evil, and yet you must see God's great steadfastness. You must see his great steadfastness. And here we come to this amazing verse. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Wow. Never believe it when someone says the gospel isn't present in the Old Testament. The Lord will not forsake his people. God will never turn his back on his people. That's why I read earlier in 2 Timothy 2, the statement, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And that's why he says that he did it for his great name's sake. That from Psalm 23, everybody's favorite psalm, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. That God, the reason he's faithful to us is because he's tied his name to you. Your name is engraved on his heart. And his name is tied to you. He will never be faithless to his own name. You may ask yourself, why does God go to the mat for his people? Why does God continue to remain his people's God? Well, it's really simple, actually. He made a promise to a man named Abraham, and God keeps his promises. And if you're, in Galatians we read, if you're a Gentile, not a Jew, if you're a Gentile but believe and trust in Jesus, he keeps his promise to you because you're in Abraham's family. You're a child of Abraham, and he made a promise to keep it. And so the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, but don't miss this. The Lord will not forsake his people. Are you a part of his people? It doesn't say the Lord will not forsake all people. It says his people. How do you know if you're in his family? Have you trusted in his son? That's how you know. Do you believe in, his, in the Savior, Jesus Christ, for, for your forgiveness of your sins? That is how you know you're his people. And so we have to see God's son. And we see a glimpse of God's son in Samuel, don't we? He's a, he's a good guy. He's not a great or perfect guy. But look what he says in verse 23 and following. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord, by ceasing to pray for you, that I will instruct you in the good 
and right way. See, Samuel's saying, I am a priest before you. I will pray for you. I will intercede for you. I will lift you up to the Lord in prayer. And I'll instruct you. Samuel was great. And he fulfilled God's purpose for helping the people in that time. But the purpose was temporary since the people's sin remained. They would continue to rebel and run, run away from God. The people would need a mediator that was not just good, but perfect. And one that was not just perfect, but that would be punished in their place. And so herein lies the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Hear these words, Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out on the cross with a voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God will never forsake his people because he forsook his son for you. That he turned his face away from his son. That he broke relationship with Jesus on the cross so that he would never break relationship with you. The wrath of God fell on Jesus so that it would never have to be poured out upon you, brother and sister. This is the heart of the gospel. That is good news. The cross confirms your salvation. The cross confirms that Jesus will ne- that God will never forsake you. And the resurrection confirms. The empty tomb validates the fact that you too will rise again in Christ. Have that truth transform every thought and action direction of your life. Went to a funeral yesterday for one of our older members, Kim Atkinson. And it's, it's always, it's bittersweet going to a believer's funeral, sweet in the sense that we know where she is. That we get to celebrate that the death of a believer is not the last word. That because Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, and not just died, but rose, ag- rose again, that we will die and rise again with him. So it's a celebration for every believer who dies in Christ. And this is the final word, final application for this text. Verse 24, he says this, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. Fear, serve, and consider. Those are my last three words, words of application for you. Fear the Lord. Have Real fear of God. Know that without, um, without Jesus, we should fear punishment. But He's taken our punishment. Therefore, fear the Lord because He loves you. And serve Him faithfully. Serve Him faithfully. Follow Him. Follow what He says to do. Read your word. Read the word of God. Come to church. Do those simple things. And why? What motivates us? It's when we consider what great things He has done for you. That means go back in your life. How has God loved you? How has he walked with you? How can you trace his finger? But ultimately, go back to the cross. Consider what he's done for you. Consider the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. That will give you hope.
that will give you confidence. So we need to see our sin and we need to see God's steadfast love perfectly viewed through God's Son, our Savior. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this comfort. That we, though, um, though deserving all wrath and, and punishment for our sin, have been given Christ. As we look to him, we are forgiven of our sin. Father, as we see ourselves in Israel in these passages, let us remember that God's mercy and his grace was there from the beginning. These promises of God's goodness, that he will never forsake his people. May that be a banner over each one of our lives as we look to him and trust in him. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.